0: I'm going to be very bold now and tell you that during the course of this message, I'm going to attempt to piece by piece dismantle your belief system when it comes to the shame that you have or that you have had in your life. And I'm going to help you to rebuild, hopefully, a brand new and powerful perspective on your life up to this point. And those aren't just words. That's my absolute hope and prayer this morning, that as a result of that, you're going to have a new and powerful perspective on your life moving from this point forward. Sounds very dramatic, but that really and truly is my hope this morning, because I believe that guilt and shame, like nothing else, can actually stop you from doing anything. I'm not just talking about anything and what you're supposed to be doing for God. Guilt and shame can stop you, freeze you, and stop you from doing anything. And in order to dismantle your belief system and rebuild again, I'm planning on using one tool, and that tool is this, truth. Truth. Not my truth, not your truth, the truth. That's what it is that I'm going to be using this morning to hopefully, as I said, change your perspective, dismantle your belief system, and rebuild a new one. Uh, sounds radical, sounds dramatic, and I've got 45 minutes to do that. Um, so, but I'm 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 gung ho about it this morning. I'm really, really am. All right. So before all the, I do all of that, though, what I want to do is take a moment and look at what guilt and shame actually. Ah these words are often interchanged you might say you know i feel guilty about something or you might say i feel ashamed of that and you mean the same thing you're talking about the same thing but they are different they're subtly different okay they go hand in hand oftentimes you, you would say, you know, I feel guilt, guilty and ashamed, and they're very, very closely related. But the fact that we say guilt and shame means that they are actually two different things. Otherwise, we would simply say guilt, or we would simply say shame to describe the same thing. So, as I'm prone to do, as I like to do, I'm going to look at the actual definitions of these words and find out exactly what they are, and how they may display themselves in our lives. This is probably just going to reinforce what you already know, but it might teach you something different, a different look on what these words mean. Guilt. First definition in the dictionary says, the fact or state of having committed an offence, crime, violation, or wrong, especially against moral or penal law. In other words, culpability. Okay, so this Use of the word guilt, it speaks to the fact of actual guilt in a situation, all right? Whether someone did something or they didn't do something. If you run a stop sign, you are guilty of breaking the law, irrespective of how you feel about that, okay? The second definition of guilt is this, a feeling of responsibility or remorse for some offense, crime, wrong, etc., whether real or imagined. So, This use of the word guilt, this is in relation to the feeling of guilt, okay? This stop sign that you just ran. You have broken the law, so you are guilty of breaking the law, but how does that make you feel? Do you feel responsibility or remorse for the fact that you ran that stop sign? If the answer is yes, then what you're feeling is guilty. If the answer is no, then you are guilty, but you don't feel guilty. The feeling of guilt is about how you have made somebody else feel or how someone else has been affected by your actions. You run that stop sign and nobody sees you, there's every chance that you are not going to feel guilty. But if you run that stop sign and cause an accident, chances are that you are going to feel more guilty. You're just as guilty in both cases. But the second time, you're going to feel guilt. Now, shame is subtly different here is a definition of shame. It's the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, etc., done by oneself or another. And I read that and I thought, how accurate is that description? A, a painful feeling. If you have ever felt shame, you'll know exactly what that's talking about. I know how that, that feels. Shame is more to do with how we feel about ourselves than how we feel about the thing that we did. We might feel guilt about how we made somebody else feel, but when we have that painful feeling inside, and frankly, we dislike ourselves for having done that, then that is shame. So in a nutshell, when we do something bad, if we make a wrong choice, if we hurt somebody or somebody's feelings, there's a distinct possibility that we will feel both guilt and shame about it. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today, guilt and shame, those feelings that we might have when we've done something wrong. Now, this is assuming, of course, that at some point in your life, you have done something wrong, all right? Now, if that's not you, then you're going to be proper bored while I'm uh, speaking about these topics, I'm afraid, so uh, just bear with me. So guilt and shame, possibly, as I said, if not probably, two of the biggest potential stumbling blocks that can be in your life. Why is that? Well, because simply put, the way you see yourself will shape your life more than the way you see anyone or anything else. How you see yourself is going to shape your life. Who you have relationship with and what those relationships will look like is determined by the value and the worth that you place on yourself. Nothing will make you shut yourself off from deep and meaningful relationships as much as a low self-image and a feeling of unworthiness. So how we see ourselves affects every single thing about our lives, everything. Our self-image determines the things that we will attempt to do and not do, and how confident we are when we're doing those things. And the truth is that we can limit ourselves and the impact our lives can make by limiting what we think we are worthy of. And this is all so tied in with guilt and shame. We will never rise higher than the ceiling that we put on ourselves. And whenever we get to a place that we genuinely believe is too high a station for us, we will normally self-sabotage ourselves to bring us back down to the level that we believe we belong. So how you see yourself, the shame that you carry, how worthy you see yourself of relationship is going to determine the relationships that you have and how you act within those relationships. Guilt and shame are obstacles on your path that can be big enough to stop you walking altogether. We've been talking about stumbling blocks, something which, when you imagine that, is small enough for you to actually get over and climb over. Guilt and shame, I believe, can become so big that you can't even climb over them. They can stop you dead in your tracks. So how you feel about the things that you've done in the past will absolutely shape your future. And let me say that one more time. How you feel about the things that you've done in the past will absolutely shape your future. But hear this, I didn't say the things that you have done in the past will shape your future. I said the way you feel about the things that you've done in the past will shape your future. Shame about things in your past will make you hesitant about stepping into what it is that God has for you. Maybe to the extent that you will never fully know what it is that God has for you. Shame is going to stop your relationship with God. It's going to slow your relationship with God down at the very best, but it can potentially make you entirely detached from Him, which is going to affect every single area of your life. Those who have no relationship with God have a different approach to life, a different outlook on life, a different perspective to life, a different input to life, a different output to life, different results from life to those people who have a close relationship with God. And guilt and shame about what you've done in the past can make you distance yourself from God. It's my belief it's the most common reason that people don't believe God has a purpose for them. is because they don't feel worthy of God having purpose for them. Here's the great news. If this is you, your opinion of you doesn't change God's opinion of you. I'm going to let that sink in for a few moments, and I'm going to come back to show you just how true that statement is. We're going to be talking about guilt and shame, two big things, but as I said, I'm going to try and dismantle the way that you see those things and rebuild a different perspective on your life. Shame makes us hide. It makes us hide from relationships with other people. It makes us hide from opportunities that might come our way. And most impactfully and importantly, it makes us hide from God. That's what the feeling of shame does. It's what the feeling of shame will always do. And it's what the feeling of shame has always done. Look at this. Genesis 3, 6 and 8. So when the woman, this is Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and hiding is a human response to that human emotion. Adam and Eve hid in the trees of the garden, and we do the same kind of thing. We do life and we hide in plain sight. We don't necessarily physically shut ourselves away, but emotionally we do, and as importantly, spiritually, we do. So listen, because this is vital for you to understand Sin has a distancing effect on our relationship with God. Sin in your life, bad decisions, bad choices, things that you have done in your life have a distancing effect on our relationship with God. God does not distance himself from us when we do wrong, but we distance ourselves from him because of our shame and, connected to that shame, our sense of unworthiness, We know that we are guilty of doing wrong. We know that we've done wrong. And because of at least one of those things in the past, maybe all of those things in the past, that we know that we are guilty of, we feel guilty. We feel guilty. We feel shame. We feel unworthiness. And because of those human emotions, we distance ourselves from God. We read the word less. We pray less. We believe less we trust less, we come to church less, all things that God does not want us to do and all of the things that Satan does want us to do. We do that because we feel we do not deserve to be in his presence. Am I speaking to anybody today? Because I know that I've felt this in the past, that we do deserve, we feel this, we feel that we do deserve to be condemned and punished by him. We feel that, that we deserve that. We deserve to be condemned, cast aside. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve the things in life that he promises that he will give to us. Let me tell you something else right now that I need you to hear. We absolutely, absolutely deserve to be judged and condemned by God. We absolutely deserve to be punished for the sins that we've committed against him, the sins that we're still committing today, and every sin that we will commit in the future. All of us, every one of us. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Now the words before that verse say, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. So what does that mean? It doesn't matter who you are, What sex you are, how old you are, what color you are, it doesn't matter. You have fallen short of the glory of God. I have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short. So we all deserve to be cast away from God, by God. We all deserve that. We all deserve to face his wrath. But that won't happen for anybody that has accepted that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I told you that when I started this message, I was going to attempt to, do, to, to dismantle your outlook, your belief system about your guilt and shame, and I was going to use truth to do that. And in order for me to be able to do that to the degree that I would like, I need you to do one thing. I need you to believe that this is truth. This is God's truth. I need you to believe that. Now again, if you don't trust that, but you trust me, trust the fact that this is truth. I've looked into this, I've studied this in in depth, in detail, not just the book itself, but the history of the book. And this book, there is no book like it on the face of the planet. And that's not pastor speak, this is just Pete telling you that this book is absolutely 100% what it is that it is what it says it is. This is God's Word. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament which came, to, came truth. Just as one tiny example, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born, this Word predicted exactly where Jesus Christ was going to be born. Exactly. The town he was going to be born in was predicted Now, you might say, oh, well, yeah, well, it was written after the event. And no, it wasn't written after the event. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s and 50s. And one of the scrolls that was found in there was the original manuscript, one of the very original manuscripts of the book of Isaiah. Almost complete, the whole book of Isaiah. And in that, that, that's in where the prediction is as to where Jesus Christ was going to be born. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that before it happened, it was predicted to happen. And that is just one of hundreds of prophecies and predictions which are made in the Old Testament. I could go on and on and on about that because I'm fascinated by it and because I want you to understand and believe that this word that we talk about and we say is God's truth is absolutely God's truth. Second Timothy three, sixteen through seventeen says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now again, these are all scriptures that you've heard before. There's certainly scriptures that you've heard me speak before, because I tend to dwell on this topic about the validity of the Bible. Why? Because if I can I don't need to teach you the whole Bible, but if I can have you believe that the Bible is truth then away you go. Go read the Bible. I've done my work because my work is not to teach you every word of the Bible. As a pastor, pastors, biblically, we are called to equip you. So if I tell you that this is truth and I give you enough proof that this is truth, then I've done my job. You're equipped. If you're not equipped, go up the back there and we'll give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. There you go. I've just done my job. I've equipped you. I've equipped you. This scripture, I need you to understand, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now that, breathed out by God, that's the translation directly from the Greek. The Greek word is theoponoustos, and that is actually uh, in the Bible, in the Greek word, okay? And now it's once in the Bible. Theoponoustos is in in, in the Greek Bible once in this scripture, Now, what I know about the Bible is this. If there is one word that's in there one time, you better know that that's in there for a reason. That one word is a powerful word. Now, in other translations, this is the English Standard Version. This version and the NIV version use the words breathed out by God. Every other version that you have, if you know this scripture, you will know that it says all scripture is inspired by God. But the reason it says inspired by God is because those translations were not actually translated directly from... I'm going to go all nerdy on you now, but this is important. Those translations were not translated directly from the Greek. They were actually translated from what's known as the Vulgate, and that is the first Latin translation from the Greek. So when it went from Greek to Latin to English, okay. when the first English Bible came out, it had been translated from the Latin. And the Latin word for breathed out by God which is, let me get this right, inspiratio. I don't speak Latin, so if you speak Latin and I've just mispronounce the words, I apologise. Please don't be offended and come and find me at the end and tell me how I'm supposed to say it. But inspiratio, so what's actually happened is in that word, inspiratio, is like inspired. So the word has actually not been translated from the Latin into English. It's been what's called transliterated, which means that it's been transferred across. Somebody thought that that looked like inspired, so they brought the word inspired across. Why am I saying all that? Because, you know, all Scripture is inspired by God, I don't think does the job. It gives the impression that, you know, these people sat down to write the Bible and they were inspired by God. They were not inspired by God. God breathed these words through the people that wrote these books of the Bible. He breathed them through. So what is important here is this, we accept the fact And it is fact that the Bible is God's Word. And the Bible is not the thoughts of man about God. And when we fully accept that as our starting point, it enables the Bible to do to us what the Bible is intended to do to us. Teach, reproof, correct, train, complete, and equip us. That's what the Bible is designed to do. And if we believe what the Bible is, and it is, then we that that then enables the Bible to do what it's supposed to do to us. And one of the most important areas that we need to be taught and corrected in is in our understanding of how God sees you and me, irrespective of the things that we have done, the things that we do, and irrespective of our thoughts about what God thinks about us and how he sees us. Again, your opinion of you does not change God's opinion of you. And I'll go one step further. Your opinion of what you think God thinks about you does not change God's opinion of you. So let's summarize where we've got so far. One, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Two, we're all guilty and we deserve to be punished. Three, our shame and sense of unworthiness can distance us from God. Four, the Bible is breathed out by God and is the truth. Everyone with me so far? All right, so we're going to expand on what it is that God thinks about the bad things that we've done in our past and the bad things that we will do in the future. God is a just God. God needs our sin to be paid for. However, God loves us unconditionally and God wants us to be with him eternally. Some people are confused by the fact that those two things seem to be opposite. On the one hand, God is a just God and needs our sin to be paid for. On the other hand, God loves us so much that he wants us to be with him for eternity. Now, there would be a contradiction if I'd said that God needs our sin to be paid for by us. But that's not what I said. God needs our sin to be paid for, period. So here's the thing that every Christian knows. On some level, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now I say every christian knows it at some level because it's my belief that not every christian fully grasps that and embraces that. That's my belief. I don't think they fail to grasp it because of ignorance or a lack of intelligence. I think it's more to do with the fact that deep down they don't believe that they deserve it and they don't understand why God would do it. Again, We deserve to be punished and condemned for what we have done and what we do. Well, the verse expresses, the next verse expresses God's response to that issue. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We use John 3.16 all of the time to express God's love. It's the most well-known scripture in the world. But what do we say expresses God's love? We say God loved us so much that he gave his only son. That's how, much, that's how much God loved us. He gave his only son. And that's true. And that is an expression of God's love for us. But more importantly than that is the expression of love in the why he gave his son. He didn't give his son as a symbol of his love. He didn't give his son as a gesture so that we could look at it and say, wow, God sacrificed his son because he loves us that much. He gave his Son because he loves us so much that he wants us to have eternal life in heaven. And we couldn't do that without him giving his Son. Now look at the explanation in the book of 1 John. It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins propitiation another great bible word another great word that we don't necessarily you know understand propitiation is the only word that means what propitiation means and again in some versions of the bible you're not going to read the word propitiation so what does propitiation mean listen to this propitiation is the payment of the satisfaction of the settlement of the cancelling out of the erasing of So let's put those words into that sentence, into that scripture, and this is what we get. He loved us and sent His Son to be the payment of, the satisfaction of, the settlement of, the cancelling out of, the erasing of our sins. Understand that. Grasp that. Get that. God never changes, God has always been a just God. God has always hated sin. And God has always required some form of payment or sacrifice to cover that sin or atone. In other words, pay for the sin. Before God sent Christ to die, his requirement for man was that sacrifices of animals would be made. And I'm not going to go into too much detail with that. I don't have time. But again, there are scriptures in the Old Testament, specific instructions from God as the way that these sacrifices should take place. And we can read about them in the Old Testament. There are many accounts uh, detailing sacrifices that were made to cover the sin of man. They would take place in the tabernacle. And that's a large tent that, again, was built to specific instructions given by God. The book of Leviticus is a book, is a deep book, a heavy book. It's the book that tends to bog us down when we're doing the daily reading of the Bible. How many people have started a yearly reading and stopped when they got to Leviticus? thank you for your honesty, sir. I appreciate it. I know there's more of you. I know there's more of you. But Leviticus will go through all the details of that and show you that they had to build the tabernacle a certain way. And then within that, the sacrifices had to be done a certain way. And those sacrifices were there to atone for man's sin. Now, Jesus dying on the cross stopped the need for those sacrifices to be made. Jesus was, in fact, a sacrifice that would settle the sin debt forever. Look how this is described by the writer of Hebrews. He says, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. Some versions say that he's gone into a heavenly tent, so to speak. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever secured our redemption forever. Now, I'm apologizing for the amount of scripture I'm throwing at you, but I need you to understand and grasp this because every single time I'm throwing these scriptures at you, I'm hoping it's going to chip away at what it is that you think and feel about your guilt and about your shame and about your undeservedness and about the fact that God can't possibly love you and God can't possibly want you to be with him eternally. Every one of these scriptures should chip that away. If you believe when you leave here, that you're condemned by God for the sin in your life, that you are distanced by Him because of the sin in your life, because there's a chance that you're going to hell because of the sin in your life. If you've given your life to Christ and you leave here thinking those things, I have failed miserably this morning, because my purpose is that your perspective is changed, that you know the truth, It was the same truth when you walked in here, you just might not have known it. I want you to know it when you leave, because this will change your life. It will change your life. So under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Listen, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship God the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Dwell on this line for a moment, if you would. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Purify our consciences. What does that mean? It means that the blood of Christ should do more than pay for our sin. It should clear our consciences. It should clear our consciences. What does that mean? If you have a clear conscience, you're not feeling guilt. You're not feeling shame. The two are completely opposite, am I right? You can't have a clear conscience and feel guilty at the same time, right? So this scripture tells us quite clearly, it's not simply about Jesus Christ paying for our sins, it's about his blood washing our consciences clean. So not only does God see us as righteous and holy, not only are we justified by the, by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, what does that mean? Just He's set apart from the sin in our lives. He sees us as righteous and holy. We are not righteous and holy. You never will be righteous and holy. But God sees you as righteous and and holy. So why are you feeling guilt and shame for something that God has dismissed? He's washed clean. Having our consciences purified and cleansed, what does that allow us to do? It allows us to worship God. You put two people side by side, during praise and worship, I'm going to be able to tell you during praise and worship which one of those people is carrying a burden of some kind. Because someone who's feeling guilt and shame cannot worship God the same as somebody who's not feeling guilt and shame. Because why? Because you distance yourself from God. But here's the thing, if you have one person who is not carrying that guilt and shame, who by the way could well have committed things in their past way worse than the person next to them, But if that person is not carrying guilt and shame, and this person is carrying guilt and shame, God sees them both exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. So we can draw close to him when we have a clear conscience, a clean conscience. We can draw close to him. We can be in fellowship with him. We can pray to him completely unencumbered without guilt, without shame, without the burden of guilt for what it is that we have done. It means that we can commit ourselves to him. We can commit ourselves to the purpose that he has for our lives and trust me, he's got purpose for your life. 100% of you in this room, God has a purpose for you and you cannot go into that full, fully, wholeheartedly, gung-ho if you want to use that phrase again. You cannot do that while you're carrying the burdens of guilt and shame, burdens that you should not be carrying. I'm not dismissing what it is that you've done, I'm not dismissing the fact that you may well have affected people in your lives to the negative, trust me, been there, done that, several times over, I know what it is to feel guilt and shame, but I also know what it is to not feel guilt and shame, because that's the biggest single thing that affected me when I gave my life to Christ, instantly, that was lifted off me, I couldn't explain it, I couldn't tell you what had happened, until in hindsight... But that's exactly what happened. Why? Because that's exactly what's supposed to happen. When you give your life to Christ, you are forgiven. And your conscience is washed clean. So if you are able to be completely committed to God, totally connected to God, totally in fellowship with God, praying to God, unencumbered, worshipping God, unencumbered, if you are able to do all of those things, you tell me that that is not life-changing. It's life-changing when you are not held back. We are not to condemn ourselves for the things that we've done. And if you are in a period right now, or if you're in a place where you are feeling guilt and shame, that's exactly what you're doing. You are condemning yourself. Look at this scripture. Again, more scripture. Romans 8, 1 through 2. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. No condemnation. doesn't say no condemnation as long as. No condemnation apart from you who did this. It says no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So if you belong to Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. The creator of the universe is not condemning you. So why on earth are you? Why on earth are you? No condemnation. So a lot of the guilt and shame that you're feeling in your relationship with God is, is going to be linked in and tied in with how it is that you think God sees you. You're going to read through the Bible and you're going to be seeing where God has, God's wrath has come upon his people. You're going to read through the Old Testament and you know, God has been responsible for the deaths of millions of people. That's the reality. God will be responsible for the deaths of millions of people to come. If you know your Bible, then that is biblical. Is that making God a bad God? No, it makes God a just God. And if you are, have given your life to Christ, you are not one of those people. But God's justice is going to happen. And when you're reading through the Bible, you will read all of these stories and these, these, these things, and you will read through scriptures, and you will hear the word judged. Several times, God will judge this, and God will judge that. So I'm going to answer a question about condemnation and punishment, and God's view on us and our sin. A question that you may be thinking right now, and if you aren't thinking it right now, you may have thought about it in the past, and if you've never thought of it well, I'm going to think of it for you right now. So here's the deal. So pastor, you'll be asking the question, if all you are saying is true and you are not to be condemned by God, what about the fact that right through the Bible it speaks of God judging us? What about judgment day? Great question. Thank you for asking it. (laughs) I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes and it is just going to be a few minutes and I I genuinely could speak for days about this. You could do a 12-part series just on this. So I'm going to give you, I mean, this is smaller than the the basics and smaller than the 101s, but I'm going to give you, hopefully, just a nugget of truth here, which could, again, completely change your perspective. Let me tell you, firstly, yes, you're going to be judged. You will be judged, and so will I, and so will everybody else. Acts 17.31, because he God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The words there, the world. Judge the world. That's pretty all-encompassing. That's everybody who has been, who is now, and who will be. The world. We are all going to be judged. The man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus Christ. It's him that will be doing the judging. God has given him that authority. And all of this, again, I could back up with scriptures. I'm not doing it for the sake of time. Read about it. Study it. Learn it. Because why? Because this Bible is truth. Like I said, I've equipped you. Get yourself a Bible. All right. God has given him that authority. Judgment is future for each and every one of us. So everybody's going to be judged. But, listen to me. Everyone will not be judged in the same way. One of the challenges that we face when we're trying to understand God's judgment is quite simply the English language and the fact that the word judgment has more than one meaning. If I go to court for committing a crime, I am going to be judged. If you enter your daughter or granddaughter in a pageant, she is going to be judged. I'm going to leave with a fine or a prison sentence. Hopefully, she's going to be leaving with a ribbon. All right? Both of these scenarios have something in common. Both the girl and I are going to be scrutinized and examined, and we're going to be evaluated. In basic terms, she's going to be looked at closely to see, to see how good she has done, and I'm going to be looked at closely to see how badly I have done. Making sense so far. The judgment that we will face Jesus in is going to be one of two judgments because two judgments will be taking place in the future and we all will be attending and appearing in one of those two judgments. One of those judgments is about punishment. One is about praise. One of those is about retribution. One is about reward. One of them is about condemnation. One is about commendation. So let's look at the bleak one first. This is known as the white throne judgment. Everyone heard of the white throne judgment? If you haven't, you've heard of it now. Revelation 20, 11, 12 says this. This is John writing. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now it goes on to say, if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the dead being spoken about here are all of those who have not accepted Christ. They are the people who have no relationship with God. And I want to highlight one part of the scripture. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There are other scriptures that show us the same point here, right? But again, I don't have time to cover them all with you. But what's clear here is this. The fact that the punishment that will be given to unbelievers is a measured punishment. What does that mean? It means there isn't one punishment fits all. God's punishment will be determined objectively according to His Word, and it's going to be based on what each individual has done in their lives. Someone who has rejected Christ but has still had a desire to lead a good life is not going to face the same level of punishment as a mass murderer. It's going to be on a, on a scale which is going to be determined by God, judged by God, meted out by God according to his word. He's going to look at every individual objectively. And we also know this about the white throne judgment. Judgment is mitigated by understanding. What does that mean? It means this. The more somebody knows, the more they will be judged. Jesus talks about this in the book of Luke. He says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to, but it's still a beating, right? A beating's a beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What is that all saying? It's saying this. Someone who is an unbeliever in a small remote part of a third world country because they have had very little or no exposure to who Christ is, will be dealt with less harshly than somebody in Dallas, Dallas, Texas, for example, who's in their life been surrounded by Christians, grew up in church, but rejected Christ every time he was spoken to about it. Should have known better, but made the decision to reject Christ. One person rejects Christ or never even gets to hear the the name of Christ is going to be dealt with and punished according to their deeds, but they're going to be treated They're going to be beaten less than the person who should have known better, who had every opportunity to come to know Christ. So that's a crash course on the great white throne judgment. Hopefully, none of you are going to actually experience the real thing. All right, so I'm going to talk to you about the judgment that I hope to bump into all of you at. All right, and this is known as the Beamer Seat Judgment, B-E-M-A. And it's an invitation-only event for Christians. So anybody who believes in Christ is going to face this judgment, the beamer seat judgment. Now, the word beamer is the Greek word, and again, that's used twice in the New Testament, and it's translated into judgment seat. So in Christian talk, we use the phrase beamer seat judgment when we're talking about this particular judgment and not the white throne judgment. So you have the white throne judgment, you have the beamer seat judgment. And the beamer seat judgment, listen carefully, because I'm hoping this applies to all of you, This judgment is for those who die as believers. And this judgment is about reward and not retribution. Remember, there is no condemnation in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't be scrutinized and evaluated. You are going to be scrutinized and evaluated. But the beamer seat judgment is not about whether or not you're going to hell. You are not going to be standing in front of Jesus Christ and and nervous as to whether he's going to send you down. It won't happen. There is no condemnation in Christ. If you've accepted Christ and you are at the beamer seat judgment, there will be no condemnation. But you are going to be scrutinized and evaluated. The Bible tells us that every single thing about your life is going to be shouted from the rooftops. All of the things that you spoke about in the dark, all of the things that you did in the dark, they're going to be shouted out from the rooftops. But there will be no condemnation And Paul describes this judgment by comparing us and what we've done in our lives to a builder who's creating a building. He says this, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. This is the believers he's talking about. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the loss that Paul is talking about here is not a punishment. It's not if you've done wrong in your life you're going to be punished for it, but more the reward available that's going to be lost if our lives don't produce what they could have. So again, in the same way that punishment is in hell is relative to the bad that people do, so the rewards in heaven will be in proportion to the good that we do and how well we fulfill God's plan for our lives. You understand? So again, it's not one size fits all. Yes, we're all going to go to heaven, but the reward that we receive is going to be different individually. We're all going to be in heaven. We're all going to be in God's glory. We're going to, all going to have a whale of a time. And trust me, even if you're on the lowest scale, pay scale in heaven, okay, it's incredibly different to the highest pay scale on this planet. All right? So don't let me depress you. But what I'm saying to you is, it's, again, it's all relative to the good that it is that we have done a christian that has absolutely nothing to show for their lives if you have somebody who's saved the day before they die and they have nothing to show jesus christ as being evidence of their salvation they have no works that they can point to in fact it it describes it that what we're going to have is in our arms everything is going to be there it's going to be tested by fire and everything of no value is going to go up in smoke What's left is what we're going to be judged on. All right? Again, that word judge. We're not talking now about being dealt a fine or a prison sentence. We're talking now about what color ribbon we're going to get. That's the judge that we're talking about right here. So there's so much more that I could talk about with these judgments. But if you've never known that, never understood that, that there are two judgments, the white throne judgment and the beamer seat judgment. You are only going to be at one, and that is determined before you die. If you are a believer, when you die, you will be doing the beamer and not the white throne. If you are not, then it's the other way around, okay? so I hope, Hopefully, I've made that clear in a very limited amount of time that I had. What does that mean? What it means is this, you don't have to worry about it. If you've given your life to Christ, stop reading the judgment thing and thinking, you know what, I've done something bad. Or if you do something bad tomorrow, don't be thinking, am I going to hell now? If you've given your life to Christ, no, you are not going to hell now. There is, there is nothing more, I don't even know the word to use to describe this. I was going to use frustrating, but that's the wrong, the wrong word. Upsetting is probably a better word. There is nothing more upsetting to me than seeing a Christian who is crippled by fear, who is trying to just live a perfect life because that's what they think God expects them to do. Because if you, if you do anything wrong, you are going to hell. Listen, if you've given your life to Christ, you are going to fall and stumble. It's in your human nature. We are living in a broken world. You have a broken nature. And again, this is all biblical You need to understand that you need to be doing the best that you can do because of what God has done for you. But you have got to stop chasing perfection. You've got to stop condemning yourself when you don't reach perfection. You've got to stop pointing your finger at other people to try and make them look worse than what you are. Because I'm telling you, I just mentioned this to you before, God looks at everybody exactly the same way. And you are not the judge. He's the judge. So there's no judgment or punishment, no condemnation. And again, I could go on and on about that. I'm going to stop now. So I'm going to get back to the the key point. These stumbling blocks, guilt and shame. And I said earlier that how you feel about the things that you've done in the past are absolutely going to shape your future. And the devil knows that. And he's going to play on that for as long as you allow him to do so. He is going to continually tell you that you are not worthy to have relationship with God. He's going to tell you that you deserve to be condemned and punished. I don't know if you've heard of Martin Luther. I'm not talking about Martin Luther King. I'm talking about Martin Luther. He was a a German biblical scholar. He lived in the 16th century. And he, without again going off on a tangent with this one and going all nerdy on you again, is absolutely key in the building of the Christian faith as we know it today. He was actually one of the leaders of the Reformation against the Roman Catholic Church. And again, it's fascinating history, the church history. If you don't like church history, then don't read about it. Martin Luther, let me tell you, very important guy. Without him, you wouldn't be sitting with with an English Bible right now. That's the impact that Martin Luther had on the Christian world. He... Powerful man, such a believer, that he stood up against the Roman Catholic Church, which was a matter of life and death, quite frankly. He put his life on the line standing up against the Roman Catholic Church and calling them out on their, fake, on their false doctrine. So he would put his life on the line. But this is a quote that I read from Martin Luther, and I just think this is awesome. And if you've heard nothing else today, please look this up, Google it okay, print it off, whatever it is, so that when the devil starts telling you stuff about you, just just remember this. This quote is awesome. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be, also. So you can't change the things that you've done. You cannot change the things that you've done. But you can change how you see those things. And more importantly, you can see yourself how you see yourself because of the things that you did. So let me get to the whole thrust of this message. And I'm going to close out the series with what I think is a profound truth. The things that you have done in your past are not the stumbling blocks. The way you think about them is where the stumbling comes in. The things that have happened in your past, whether you caused them or not, can absolutely be stepping stones. Not just for you, but for other people also. Those stepping stones that are there, the things that it is that you've done, they are stepping stones. It's the layer upon layer upon layer of guilt and shame that you've attached to those stepping stones that have turned them into dangerous stumbling blocks. I've got this visual that I've cleaned off all the guilt and the shame off those mistakes and the bad choices that I made. And now I'm on my walk across this raging river of life. And I can look back, and I can see this path of stones that are there. I can't remove them. I can't change them. I can't go back and take a different path. But now they are just stones. And what I can do with those stones is to guide other people over them. I can look back in my past, see those stones, see people who are making the same mistakes, the same journey that I took, take their hand and guide them across those stepping stones. I can't do that if they're stumbling blocks, but I can do that if they're stepping stones. I can talk about those stones without guilt. I can talk about those stones without shame. And I can use those stones to help somebody else who's trying to negotiate their way through these rough waters that we're all trying to get across. The truth about your past is this, the things about your past that hurt the most, the things about your past that make you feel the most shame, the things about your past that you feel most guilty about, those are the things that are going to be able to have the most impact on other people. Those are the things that you're going to be able to talk about to people who are going through the same things. And you're going to be able to tell them that you know how they feel. And you're going to be able to tell them how God has used those things to shape you, to improve you, and equip you to help others like them. So, again, the mistakes you've made in your past are not the stumbling blocks. The guilt and the shame you've attached to them are. Accept fully what it is that Jesus Christ did for you, accept fully that there is no condemnation in Christ, stop feeling guilty. Stop being ashamed and step into the life that God has purposed you for. Bow your heads where you're at, please. The whole thrust of this message is the fact that the guilt and the shame that you feel, you shouldn't be feeling. And the sole reason that you shouldn't be feeling those things is because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. What Jesus Christ has done for me what Jesus Christ has done for mankind. He died in payment of that sin. And like I said, it's done more than that. It's cleaned our consciences. We shouldn't have that guilt and we shouldn't have that shame. We've spoken about the judgments. We've spoken about the white throne judgment, which people are afraid of, and rightly so, they should be. But if you've given your life to Christ, you have no reason to be. Instead, you can look forward to the beamer seat judgment and know that you're going to be in front of Jesus Christ. And yes, you're going to be held accountable. Yes, you're going to be analyzed. Yes, you're going to be scrutinized. But at the end of all of that, the pain that you're going to feel about the things that you did wrong are going to pale into insignificance compared to the ribbon that you're going to get given. But that only applies if you've given your life to Christ. So if there's anybody here today that hasn't yet done that, you've heard appeal after appeal. Because I'm fully aware there are people who might have been turning up here week in and week out for the last however long, who have never actually given their life to Christ. You might be dipping your toe in. You might even believe that you believe. But if you've never confessed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Saviour, you're not going to be at that beam of seat judgment. That's the brutal reality. So if that's you today, if you're in a position where you've never given your life to Christ, I'm going to offer you that opportunity right now. No pressure, not forcing you. It's just an opportunity. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, if that's you today, if you've never given your life to Christ and you'd like to do that right now, please raise your hand for me nice and high so I can see it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We had hands raised. So we're going to be praying. Now, it's not this prayer that saves you. It's your heart right now. It's your commitment to Jesus Christ. You're going to say some words right now which are going to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And it's going to change your path and your destiny for the rest of your life and for your eternal life. So let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, We love you. And God, I accept the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He paid for my sins. He rose again to bring me life. And I accept, God, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And I commit my life to him from this day forward. In Jesus' name, Amen. Keep your heads bowed if you would. I'm going to pray again for another group of people now. If there's anybody here today who's been carrying guilt and shame, who's been concerned and worried about their relationship with God, who have had a sense that they are not worthy in God's eyes for relationship with Him and all that comes with that. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put those hands down. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. And we thank you, God, for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that you are a forgiving God, that you love us so much that you want us to be with you in eternity. We thank you that you want us to be with you in eternity so much, Lord, that you sacrifice your Son as payment for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation no condemnation. Not some condemnation, not less condemnation than there used to be. No condemnation. We thank you for that, Lord, and we give you praise and glory for that. And Lord, I lift up every person in this place that just raised their hand, who have been struggling with guilt and shame, who've had a sense of unworthiness in your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to you. I thank you, Lord, that you've given them the strength to raise their hands right now, Father. And I pray, Lord, that some word that you brought to them this morning has touched them and changed their lives forever. That they can leave here with that weight taken off of their shoulders. That they can live freely and lightly, as your word puts it. That they can never again be in a position where they're feeling guilt and shame of things in the past. That they can take those stumbling blocks. They can peel away those, that guilt and that shame to leave the stepping stones that are going to guide other people following the same path. We love you, Lord we give you praise, we give you glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen and Amen.